A little over nine months ago, we did an episode of Mindful on vulvodynia, a condition that causes extreme vaginal pain without any immediate medical explanation. It affects millions of women worldwide and yet is not as well known a medical condition as it ought to be. Part of this is stigma when it comes to women's sexual health and part of it is the slow pace of education for medical professionals and the public at large. There's now a major international study taking place originating in Sweden and it's for this reason we thought we'd talk about vulvodynia again with this special one-off episode outside of our regular season. My name is Eric Bowman, I'm the communications person at the Canadian Psychological Association, and this is Mindful. Provoked vestibulodynia is a subset of vulvodynia. It's sometimes, and probably more accurately, called acquired neuroproliferative provoked vestibulodynia, but that is a mouthful that will be explained later in this episode. It affects between 8 and 12% of women, which means that it is likely affected 4 to 6% of our audience today. If you have been diagnosed with vestibulodynia, or you or a loved one experience intense pain without, with pretty much any touch on the outside of the vagina, consider participating in this major international study. The link to do so is in the show notes, and you can access it at any time during the episode. Now I'd like to welcome back my colleague Catherine McLaren, the Membership and Association Development Lead at the CPA and Tier 1 Canada Research Chair in Sexual Health, Professor of Psychology at Queen's University, Dr. Carolyn Pacall. Let's just start with a little recap of what we talked about the last time. Dr. Pacall, you were on this show and we were talking about vulvodynia. It has now been nine months and I expected that your appearance on this show would make it uh, a household world, a word among all Canadians. I don't think that's happened. I looked on Twitter today and the number one trending Vulvodynia remains the South African heavy metal band. <laughs> They're on tour in the US, but uh, has there been any progress in the nine months since we last spoke? Well, and thanks so much for having me back on the show. It's thrilling to be here to talk about vulvodynia again. So thank you for raising awareness in this really important topic. Um, and so I think that a lot of awareness here is really incremental, right? Um, and so nine months, um, I'm sure more people know about it than they did before sort of the episode that we recorded nine months ago. But really to have like an impact in the real world, there has to be a lot more progress in many, many different areas of, you know, healthcare system in terms of science, in terms of public knowledge and things like that for it to really sort of, you know, capture, I think, more people as we go through. I've been working in this field for more than 20 years as well. And, you know, generally the trend is people know about it a little bit more, people are a little bit more comfortable talking about it, but it still hasn't had a lot of sort of like absorption, you know, sort of outside of the medical and scientific communities. Um, but we are lucky because we do have sort of patient-run organizations such as Tight-Lipped, which is an organization that's, you could look it up online, and so a whole bunch of individuals who are running that in order to raise awareness, in order to sort of change sort of funding. And I think together with patient organizations like Tight-Lipped, sort of science and medicine and all of us who are aware of this can really start making more sort of dense kind of in the world of vulvodynia as it relates to people in the real world. <laughs> right. And 
There seems to be a little bit more global collaboration. The reason I reached out to you today was because you're conducting a study with a team of researchers in Sweden, and you were telling me that, that it is funded by the Swedish government, which is seems to be a big step in the right direction. Absolutely. I mean, this this is just such an amazing opportunity to be involved with this particular group. And so I was approached um, several months ago by representatives of the Swedish government who work in core outcome sets. This is their expertise. And they had received funding. They had just finished a systematic review of treatments for vestibulodynia. So it's kind of a mouthful to say, but it is the most common form of vulvodynia. So it's called provoked vestibulodynia. And so this form is the most common form of vulvodynia, which is chronic uh, idiopathic pathic vulvar pain, and it manifests as pain limited to the sort of vaginal entrance, which is called the vaginal vestibule, if we're talking sort of anatomy and anatomical medical terms, that exists in response to contact to the area, which can be sexual or non-sexual uh, in nature. And it tends to affect, from really good epidemiological studies that have been done, uh, we see sort of ranges of estimates um, in terms of prevalence of about 8 to 12 percent of women who are in premenopausal age. So very prominent, in fact, affecting millions of women just in North America alone. So when I was contacted, uh, the uh, individuals from the Swedish government um, set up a meeting. I wanted to find out more. And I was just thrilled that the government was interested in this problem simply because um, it really shows, you know, sort of the importance of women's sexual health at the governmental level in Sweden. Um, and unfortunately, we don't have the same emphasis, you know, here in Canada. And hopefully that will change, you know, sort of as, I don't know, awareness starts to happen and more research starts to be done. Essentially, uh, I had been involved with an individual in the U.S. named David Foster, who's a prominent researcher looking at the pathophysiology of vestibulodynia. And pre-pandemic, we were trying to establish a core outcome set in provoked vestibulodynia. And it's very difficult to get a study of this magnitude off the ground. Uh, you need a bunch of experts, you know, in a variety of domains. And the pandemic hit and everything was put on hold. So the Swedish uh, government representatives had gone ahead and done a search for any existing core outcome set groups that had been established. And because David uh, Foster had gone ahead and registered this in the Comet Initiative, and I'll talk about that a little bit more, they approached him and said, where are you at with this? We don't want to redo the work that you're doing. And he said, uh, we've put it on pause. We don't have funding. Uh, we, we need to pay experts to help with the core outcome set, um, and we just don't have funding for it. And in fact, if you want to go ahead and do it, that's fine. You know, go for it, because I don't really see it happening, you know, feasibly in the next few years. So they approached him to be part of the team, and he very graciously uh, requested that they contact me, given sort of the fact that I was, you know, very involved in the group when it was running and uh, had a really huge interest in, in core outcome sets. And so they approached me and immediately I was like, I'd like to learn more and I'm very interested. So please, let's talk about this because we started and we didn't go very far, unfortunately. And so a core outcome set is an agreed upon sort of set of outcomes that are standardized. 
that should be measured and reported as a minimum in all clinical trials in specific areas of health or healthcare. And I'm just reading that from the Comet Initiative website, simply because I want to make sure the definition is right. Yeah. Uh, I, I was going to ask you to, to define core outcome set <laughs> and vestibule. I have never heard the word vestibule as part of uh, anatomy before. Uh, right. Kathy, are you familiar with the vestibule? Yeah, it's it's such a perfect term to describe that part of the body. It really captures exactly what it is. I mean, as a woman with a vestibule, I feel like that is uh, exactly the right words to use. Yes. <laughs> So vestibule essentially means the entranceway, right? So houses and apartments have a vestibule. That's usually where you enter in, you take your shoes off, you sort of hang up your coat, and then you sort of like just the entranceway to the main house, right? And there's a vestibule actually in your ear. So there's um, there's the vestibular canal in people's ears. So in fact, people who have, you know, ears have vestibules as well, but they're not well known. But then again, people with vaginas also have a vaginal vestibule. So it's sort of like the area, it's right at the opening of the vagina. And it essentially sort of means it's the area of skin around the vaginal opening that forms sort of the entranceway to the vagina. And so people with uh, provoked vestibulodynia have a really, really sensitive to the point that it's so painful. Their vestibules are just heightened uh, in terms of a lot of pain receptors under there. And there's inflammation that may be involved. There's pelvic floor, you know, uh, muscles that may be also involved. And there's a variety of different kinds of subtypes of vestibulodynia. But generally, it's people who have very sensitive vestibules, you know, and who engage in things like internal pelvic exams or any kind of internal menstrual product that they may be using or penetrative, you know, inter, uh, intercourse, um, as well as anything like cycling, right, or horseback riding, anything that would put it con like put contact on that area can be exceedingly painful for these individuals. And typically, they will report really severe pain. And they will typically describe it. I mean, there's a whole bunch of words that people will use, but typically it's kind of this burning and sharp quality um, to it. And, you know, we will usually see people in their 20s and 30s who are really, you know, experimenting with their sexuality and, you know, sort of dating and having some fun who have this. And it can be quite devastating to their sexual lives. And unfortunately, um, some people you know, still sort of take a look at pain and say, well, if I can find something physically wrong with the area, then we can treat it. And then we know sort of what the reason is. But vestibulodynia is a subtype of vulvodynia, which is an idiopathic pain, which means that there are no observable physical findings that can be found on a routine gynecological examination. So people may be tested for, you know, inflammation, infections, all sorts of things, but typically things will come back, you know, quote unquote, normal. And then it's kind of left to the devices of the healthcare provider to say, well, there's nothing physically wrong. And usually at that point, if you are not well-versed with vulvodynia, you would probably send the person off for a psychological consult because your assumption, having been trained in a biomedical model, although this is becoming much more comprehensive as we're speaking, you know, and as we're kind of evolving in terms of, you know, our understanding of conditions, 
it's not necessarily a purely physical versus psychological. Everything is wrapped up. Everything is connected, right? So someone may be sort of sent off or the, the referral may kind of stop there and say, I don't know what's kind of happening. You know, like you have the pain and I don't know why. But the key here is to refer on to someone who's appropriate. And there is a name for this like mysterious pain that doesn't seem to have, you know, a physical underpinning to it. If you look deep enough and if you have special equipment, sometimes you can find that innervation. If you are working with a pelvic floor physical physiotherapist, or if you yourself have training in this, most gynecologists have very basic training in the pelvic floor. But if you've taken advanced courses, you may be able to actually go beyond what would happen in a typical gynecological environment and sort of try to go beyond sort of what's happening at that local level in terms of the superficial assessment that you're doing and understand that there is a cause that you're just not picking it up and it's not necessarily really obvious in terms of how things are connected in the pelvic floor. Typically what happens if you are knowledgeable about vestibular dinia is you're able to refer to other different healthcare providers. And even if your medical um, sort of capacity is not working and the treatments are not, you know, the patient isn't responding to the treatments well and the treatments are failing the patient, right? You have other options. So Psych psychotherapy helps a lot, but not in the sense that it's kind of made up and, and, you know, sort of a manifestation of Freudian sort of issues, you know, sort of being expressed sexually, right? If you do pain management, you know, and you do sort of sex therapy, those are excellent treatments psychologically. They have been proven to be effective in research. Pelvic floor physiotherapy as well proven in research to be very, very effective. There's also a vestibulectomy, um, which is sort of a removal of the tissue of the vestibule to a depth of about four millimeters. Um, it's, you know, it's a day procedure, but, you know, recovery can be long, but absolutely quite effective according to the literature, but must be done by a qualified healthcare provider who has done many of these surgeries before. It takes a lot of experience to really sort of nail doing it the right way. So there are a variety of treatments that can be done. Uh, mindfulness uh, training either rolled into sort of CBT for pain and sexuality can also be very useful. Um, so there's lots of things that can be done. So the buck doesn't necessarily stop at the, I can't find anything physically wrong. Um, if you know about vestibulodynia, right? So you right. kind of want to take it that step further outside of your office if you're a medical provider. Uh, Catherine, I saw your face uh, sort of register a little bit of shock there when uh, the suggestion of surgery uh, <laughs> popped up there. Yeah, I um, so in advance of this call, I had done some research into it, and one of the physical suggestions was that a cause could be overdeveloped nerve endings or, or too many nerve endings um, in that area. So is the surgery, is, is that what the surgery then would be capitalizing on yet? Exactly. I'm so glad you did some background research. And so, yes, absolutely. So a colleague of mine, Andrew Goldstein in the States, um, he is an amazing clinician as well as a fantastic researcher. And he's a huge proponent of the surgery. He's done thousands of them. So he sort of sub, uh, sort of subtyped vestibulodynia into different kinds. And he has different ways of... He uses an algorithm to kind of figure out what subtype of vestibulodynia his patients have. So this is a mouthful. So he calls the type that's really responsive to surgery, he calls it 
neuroproliferative provoked vestibulodynia, okay? <laughs> so the neuroproliferative part means the overabundance of pain nerve endings in that area, right? And so that, he says, and has been borne out by research, seems to be really responsive to surgery as well. And then different types may be more responsive to pelvic floor uh, physiotherapy than to surgery, but we're still waiting for more and more sort of research on that because these subtypes have been recently defined. It takes years to do good research studies as well. I think neuroproliferated provoked vestibulodynia is not ever going to become a no. household word. word. I, don't, I don't think it even fits on a tweet. I don't think. <laughs> when you're into etymology, it's very clear. Yeah. Yeah. It is very descriptive using yeah. medical terms that not a lot of people have a good handle on, right? So it's <laughs> neuroproliferative associated vestibulodynia or, you know, so yes, exactly. Um, if so you just, Google the words one at a time, you'll definitely get there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So one of the things we talked about the last time you were on was a stigma around this, right? People don't really talk about it amongst themselves. They don't mention it to family members a lot, right? I would, would tend to, I think, more often than not be a conversation between a woman and her doctor. If a woman is seeing a doctor and has this kind of pain, but the doctor doesn't know much about vulvodynia or neuro, I, I'm not even going to try to say it a second <laughs> time, you know, but doesn't yeah. know a lot about vestibulodynia and the rest of it. What sort of uh, steps might a person be able to take to advocate for themselves in that situation? Yeah, I love this question, Eric. Um, I feel that, you know, I feel that people go to doctors expecting their doctors to like really understand everything that they're bringing to them and to be able to ask the right questions. And I think it's really important, uh, especially for sensitive topics like this, um, you know, that, you know, the patient themselves um, really sort of understands that they may need to advocate for themselves and be able to speak about their condition in ways that will really sort of relate with their healthcare provider, because not all healthcare providers know about this or are comfortable discussing this topic. And so a lot of the time, I recommend that people, you know, sort of draw out a timeline in terms of when their symptoms started, as well as have a very objective sort of way of talking about it. So they practice with a friend or a family member um, and, you know, they role play with other people in terms of how to talk about it such that you are giving sort of the the basics in ways that medical healthcare providers will understand if they don't know very much about vestibulodynia. So a lot of the time we talk about things like saying things like, I have, you know, I have a sharp burning pain at the entrance of my vagina. Every time something comes into contact with it, um, I, it is very distressing and it is affecting function in my life. Um, I'm no longer able to enjoy sexual activity and um, I cycle a lot and now that has been compromised. So something, you know, and I would rate my pain, you know, on as an eight uh, on a scale from zero to 10. And that is a package that I think, you know, has a lot of actionable sort of items for a medical care provider to, to go ahead and start asking a little bit more questions. I find that when people say things like, you know, my sex life is really ruined and they're clearly in a lot of distress. I mean, obviously people, you know, have been like a lot of the people we see have had this condition for years and have been just completely 
invalidated and ignored, you know, by the healthcare provider. And so it's very clear, you know, that this is a distressing condition. But I find that when there's a lot of emotion and a lot of focus on sexuality, a lot of healthcare providers may not be comfortable with that and may not be able to ask the right questions. And so it really is sort of trying to prep yourself for the questions and prep yourself in terms of how are you going to say this? And it's perfectly okay to cry, but you wanna get the information out um, in a digestible way that you know is framed in this pain sort of world because healthcare providers know about pain, even if they may not know about this specific pain. Now, what happens if, you know, the medical care provider goes ahead and gives a lot of advice and treatments and things are not working, then, you know, it, it's sort of like you can have a really great conversation with your healthcare provider about your healthcare provider, you know, taking a look at the National Velvodinia Association website, there's a great part on that website and with useful links for healthcare providers or, you know, asking them to consult with somebody. Um, if they're in the States, it could be with Dr. Andrew Goldstein, right? Consult with them or the patient can then go or the patient can go ahead and get a second opinion and consult, let's say, with another healthcare provider that is knowledgeable about vestibulodynia and then be able to inform their healthcare provider sort of through that route. But also, I really wish that, you know, people were comfortable saying things like, I've tried the treatment, I've used it as directed, my pain is still the same as it was. And I've heard pelvic floor physiotherapy can really help. I've read a book, I've seen you know, I've seen a few studies, I've talked with some people, can you make a recommendation of a pelvic floor physiotherapist for me to really be very clear, the treatment isn't working, you know, and I would like another referral and doctor, you need to get a little bit of leg work done here to help me out, like beyond your office, right? And so it's always sort of that, so, so should patients have to do this? No, um, in an ideal world, no, but they do especially with this condition, just because uptake is not as um, thorough or comprehensive as we would like it to be. I really love the idea of role-playing those conversations with your friends. I know in my life, often issues with, with our vagina as women, things that we're experiencing, we go to our girlfriends, we go to our moms, we go to our loved ones, all, always, often before going to the doctor. So helping and working with my loved ones to role play that conversation and get ready to share what does feel like sensitive and very vulnerable information, preparing ourselves mentally to share that information in a confident way, kind of removed from the feelings just sounds like such a, such a helpful way to go through this and to prepare for that. Yeah. And I think it's a process like, you know, the first time you talk about something that's highly distressing and like a huge part of your life, you know, that you've been keeping secret, it's going to come out in a huge heap, right? Like talk about luggage, right? Because you haven't quite, you haven't quite like really sort of taken sort of a look back and gotten other people's kind of inputs or other people's empathy, you know, just to sort of support you. So I find that starting with your circle of friends and your family that you trust, 
who would give you those responses allows you to kind of process it a little more, even talking to a psychologist, you know, or talking to a, you know, a social worker or a counselor, like, how do I bring this up? And how do I, how do I put words to this massive experience that I'm going through? And how do I communicate effectively and clearly about it so that I'm taken seriously? And this is, uh, this is like a huge issue with women's health and medical care systems, right? There's a huge bias against women um, in terms of them being sort of emotional and, you know, sort of over overly sensitive and sort of low thresholds for reporting things. Trust me, people with this pain, um, they will try to avoid a lot of healthcare provider stuff because of those biases that are that are just so systemic, you know, but eventually there may become a breaking point where they need to need to be there. And usually people will start off with their gynecologist and then be referred to or a family doctor and then kind of be referred on to additional specialists. But you can also sort of approach a pelvic health physiotherapist who can then make a recommendation for a medical doctor who knows about vestibulodynia. So there's multiple ways, or you could talk to, you know, a, a psychologist or someone who works in sexual health who may have some really good recommendations for you. And the National Vulvodynia Association has like a list of healthcare providers across the world that people can have access to in order to start with someone who is knowledgeable in healthcare of people with vestibulodynia. So that is always a great place to start, um, is to just make sure you know you are in the right hands at that time. But that may not be possible in every single location. So it may be that you're asking your healthcare provider to consult with someone or getting second opinions with someone else that's informing your treatment through this more collaborative process. No, what a fantastic resource. Sorry, Eric. No, yeah, no, it really is. I was just thinking, Catherine runs a theater company here in Ottawa called Company of Fools, and uh, I'm picturing an improv exercise now. The word is vestibulodynia. Go, right? Go. <laughs> considering that, uh, considering that Company of Fools is primarily Shakespeare, uh, that would be a very interesting, <laughs> interesting exercise. You've got to invite me to this. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. I'll, I'll talk to the artistic director. Uh, now, we have just a few minutes left, so I want to talk about this study that you're running right now. And you're recruiting people for the study. And I imagine that when you're recruiting professionals who work uh, in this area, who are knowledgeable about it, it's fairly easy because you have that network, right? But you're also recruiting participants who are people who have experienced provoked vestibulodynia and family members, close loved ones of those who have experienced this, how do you reach those people when there is such a stigma about talking about it and many of us don't even know that our loved ones have experienced it? That is such a great question as well. Thank you for asking that. So we do a lot of outreach with um, social media, right? And so people who follow us are interested in sexual health and may or may not have conditions that we are studying in the lab or that we see in the service that I run. So we do a lot of like a lot of work in terms of social media outreach. We also publish blogs on sort of letting people know about the studies we're doing. We try to go through uh, a lot of the healthcare providers that we know to uh, advertise to their patients. Um, we also go through patient organizations. So I was in touch with the main organizer of Tight Lip and asked her to go ahead and share all of the information through the listserv. So she has uh, hundreds of people who have 
vestibulodynia and related conditions, I was like, please, you know, um, please go ahead and share this if that's okay. There's also, there's a Facebook group um, called Bodies, which is linked to a podcast called Bodies, which covers a lot of sort of mysterious conditions that seem to disproportionately affect women, maybe a post to fa- the Facebook group and being in touch with the organizer there and sort of like maybe even more podcasts like this, right? And so this is how we just try our best to sort of reach. And then if participants are saying that they're patients, then we can go back to them and say, do you have family members that you've talked to about this, right? Or can you sort of like snowball recruitment for us? Because these these are the typically smaller groups that we will receive for this. Uh, And I find that, you know, sort of doing a core outcome set with everybody, as many people as we can get involved, is so important with research moving forward, because research, even outside of like clinical trials, like treatment studies, like even like research that we would do, if we all had sort of the same questions measured in the same way on the same domains, and that could be like four or five domains, right? And we could add whatever else we want. We could compare more easily the results of our studies to each other to like really understand what works, what doesn't work, um, what are the key psychological factors to target in psychotherapy, et cetera, right? And so I find that this is an amazing initiative and I'm so proud to be part of it. Are you recruiting only people who have been diagnosed specifically with vestibulodynia? Or if somebody's listening who says, actually, I have a lot of those symptoms, but my doctor hasn't been able to tell me what it was and we've had uh, some issues, but I would like to sign up for this study. Can they do that? Yes, they can. Absolutely. One of the problems with vestibulodynia is that it's not often, you know, timely diagnosed, like diagnosed in a timely way. And so if you suspect that you have vestibulodynia, please, um, please go ahead and take a look at um, at the study. So I'm happy to share all of the links with you um, for the podcast as well. So we have a variety of different routes that we're soliciting sort of participation through. We will put those in the show notes and a link to the improv video that Catherine does when uh... awesome. <laughs> can't wait. <laughs> I will uh, I'll do what I can in my with my powers board chair to try and I don't know, recruit some actors, but it's gonna cost. I have to pay them. <laughs> <laughs> it's always the issue. We need money for funding, we need money for a whole bunch of th- money for research and money for improv and money for everything. <laughs> <laughs> but we, well, I can help with the grant application for the acting portion of this, I'm sure. Sounds great. <laughs> I, you know what? I have actually reached out to the heavy metal band uh, to see if they want to come on this podcast as well. Uh, just because I think they have, they have the ability to get more people aware of the word and the condition. Uh, they will be key. You know, <laughs> they could be key to this entire thing. We just need to get their music trending on TikTok with an informative video, and then we're we're in line. Maybe we will do that. Maybe my lab will take that on. So we'll see. Yeah, Yeah. I I don't. I I have listened to some of it. I don't think we could do that. It's uh, (laughs) (laughs) they chose the name because they found it in a textbook and said that sounds really brutal. Well, we want to be as brutal as possible as a heavy metal, death metal band, right? So uh, thank you so much for participating in this. Catherine, thank you for uh, joining us and doing this. Thank you both. Thank you so much. It's very empowering, um, I think, for a lot of women to be able to put a name to this situation that is so common. 
thank you to Dr. Carolyn Pakal for joining us for this special one-off episode of Mindful. If you or a loved one experienced the symptoms we discussed today, please consider participating in the study which we've linked in the show notes. We've also included some of the other links Dr. Pakal mentioned, like the Tight-Lipped Podcast and National Vulvodynia Association. Mindful is written, produced, edited, and published by me, Eric Bowman. Today's episode was co-hosted by me and the CPA's Membership and Association Development Lead, Catherine McLaren. Our theme music is Avenues by David Taylor. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back with another full season sometime this fall.